Today, we're talking about this guy. And I know he's really weird. Out of all of the felt characters that we reproduced, I have a problem with him. I think it's because it's an idol that's in our church. So it's kind of like, I don't like it in here. But, in truth be told, it's technically not an idol. It's technically in the scripture, it's a vision from God. So I think he's okay if he's in here. I still don't like the way that he looks. But regardless, we're going to talk about him. Who is this? Why is there this kind of weird, creepy guy in the sanctuary? And why do I think it's important? It's actually really important. And uh, we're going to uncover that. But we need to know where we are at in the middle of our story. Everything you need to know in life you learned in Sunday school. Yay. Everything you need to know you learned in Sunday school. Hmm. This is Jennifer Maglio's idea. I'm going to give her her rock now. You get your rock. Yes, I made you a rock. Of course I made you a rock. This. <laughs> um, everything you need to know you learned in Sunday school. In the big, giant picture of the narrative of the scriptures, we are going from God's perfect creation to the fall to being called into a family from blowing it, becoming slaves in Egypt, going into exile, surviving in the desert, dying in the desert, entering into the promised land. That's where we're at right now. Right now, God's people have stepped into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They are where they are need, where they need to be. They are a people called by God that now have a place. They no longer have to set up a tent to worship. There's no more tabernacle because the kings have come. King David and King Solomon, they have, specifically Solomon, has built the temple. It is the place that God chooses to dwell. Between the wings of the cherubim that rests on top of the Ark of the Covenant, how many people saw the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That thing. Between those wings is where God's presence resides. And that is in the Holy of Holies in the temple, in Solomon's temple. It's glorious. It is the highlight, but once again we fall into this cycle of sin as soon as Solomon is gone, a series of splits and divisions and gripings and bad kings, bad leaders that technically were following their own way and not following God's way. God's people are split into two different nations, the nation of Judah, and the nation of Israel. Super confusing. But what we need to know is that they forsaked their blessing. They let their blessing slip right through their hands. They weren't faithful to what we call the covenant. The covenant between God's people and God. We see this covenant set up in the, the law and the Torah, and it's very specific. But before we jump into... The story of this guy. I'm going to read a scripture for you. 
And it's a different version. It's called the Passion Translation. Some call it the Passion Paraphrase. But I really like how this sounds. And maybe some of you know this passage. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. God has transmitted his very substance into every scripture. I love that. God has transmitted his very substance into the books that you have right now, into your Bible. For your Bible is God-breathed. It will empower you by its instruction and correction. It will empower you by instruction, leading you, and by correcting you. I, I don't like to be corrected. Anybody want to join me with that? I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I'm an American. Don't tread on me. Giving you strength to take the right direction and to lead you deeper into paths of godliness. Then you will be God's servant, fully mature and perfectly prepared to fulfill any assignment God gives you. God has an assignment for you. And you have a book that he has transmitted his presence into. It's really a cool deal. In fact, your Bible is so exciting. I'm going to show you why it's exciting. Because, again, I could tell you, you know, I could say, yeah, God's word is, it's divinely inspired. And we're going to see how it's inspired today. So back to the story. God's judgment pours out upon his people, because they are not faithful. And because they're not faithful, uh, the nation of Israel goes first. They get, they get taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. And then a few years later, the Babylonians come in and they take away Judah, which is, well, that's where David and Solomon and all those guys come from. It's Jerusalem. And the Babylonians not only enslave everybody, they burn Solomon's beautiful temple to the ground. They completely destroy it. They burned everything. It was brutal. There is a giant ash layer that I actually worked on when I was in college. I know that it's there because I dug it up. It was brutal, everybody. And then God's people get hauled away into slavery. Now, before the COVID outbreak took place, we just ended a series, and if you were with us, maybe you remember. It was called the Book of Jeremiah. Return, Rebellion, Return, and Restoration. Do you guys remember that series, the Book of Jeremiah? If you remember, we taught something that was very unsettling maybe even disturbing, and maybe even had you question God. What the scriptures say in the book of Jeremiah and all the other prophets is that Babylon, the bad guys, well, that was God's instrument for correction. It was his idea that God's people would be pushed into exile. It was his idea that they needed to be taken out of the promised land. It's, they got put on detention. They got a timeout. 
Remember last time you got a timeout? I got one earlier this week from Mako. It happens. You know, when you're disobedient, you get a timeout. You get, you get, you get the blessings taken away. You get, you get things that God thought he could trust you with. They, they get taken away. Because, well, we're children. And, again, it's a really hard thing for us to get our heads around. Why would God use an evil king and an evil kingdom to teach his people something? It, it takes a little bit more than just a sermon. It's going to require you to delve into your own Bibles. But, again, that's what, that's what happens. That's the truth of it. And, well, Babylon's bad. Like, they're really bad. They enslave God's people. They force God's people to bow down and worship idols. It's just, it's just not a fun situation. And yet, God was in it. God's judgment is just. Some things that we need to know about the rebellion of the kings is that they began to act like all the other nations that were around them. And before Solomon's temple was destroyed and razed to the ground, yes, God's presence used to dwell there, but it had left because Judah's kings, well, they brought things like this inside of the temple. Like, they literally brought in gold statues. And, you know, you could, you could worship that invisible God behind that curtain in that box. Or you could worship this really cool God that we just got. It's, it's really nice and shiny and pretty. So they were doing that. In order for them to um, be competitive with the other religions around, to be more attractive, they actually instituted... Temple prostitution. There's one way to get young men to come to church. That's a joke. Maybe not a very good joke. But that's what they were doing. They instituted temple prostitution, and to cap things off, the last king of Judah thought it would be a really great idea to sacrifice some children. So you can understand in the temple, so you can understand why God was mad. You can understand why God would say, okay, it's time for a timeout. We're putting you in the corner until you straighten up and you actually respect the blessing that I've given you. You respect the land flowing with milk and honey. So that's what's taking place. Now, again, let's get back to this guy. So for those of you, and I've learned that a lot of you have, you were not blessed or didn't have the opportunity to go to Sunday school and to be taught by the felt board. Like, I'm really surprised at how many people weren't raised like I was. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't get to go through Sunday school. They, they, there's some of us that never heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, how tragic is that? Some of you have never heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're talking today about Daniel, the book of Daniel and his friends. They were of the tribe of Judah. They were very young and the smartest of the smart. And when the evil empire took God's people to teach God's people a lesson, at least these four men were raised up inside of leadership to
to serve an evil king, to make sure that he looked good. So they were trained in mathematics and science, administration, warfare, the arts, you name it, they were doing it all. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then one day, this evil king, well, I mean, from our perspective, he's evil, but in the world's perspective, he was just running the show like any pagan king would, and, you know, he he erects this big, giant gold statue, most likely of himself. Maybe he looked at something like this. And you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're all forced to worship him, and they choose not to. Now, they have been serving the king. They've been working for him. They've been making sure that he's rich and famous. Their goal, their job is to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar is successful. But this is crossing the line. So they're not going to worship. They're not going to bow down to a big, giant, golden idol. They get thrown in the fire. And the three guys are not burning. They're not consumed by the pressure. They come out and their clothes are inherited. They're not even scorched. But while they're in the fire, you know the story. There was a fourth person whom the evil king saw and declared, it looks like he is the son of a god, or the son of God. And we know who that is. I get chills thinking about it. It's Jesus. Jesus showed up for these three guys in the fiery furnace. That big idol that Nebuchadnezzar was forcing people to worship. Later, it would come into his dreams. Now, you think that you have a bad boss. Nebuchadnezzar was a piece of work. This idol comes into his dream at night, and it so disturbs him that he calls upon his sorcerers and his magicians and his soothsayers and voodoo priests and everybody that he could possibly find, and he brings them all together, and he said, I had a really bad dream, and you guys are going to interpret it. In fact, not only are you going to interpret my dream, you are going to tell me what I dreamed last night. And if you can't tell me what I dreamed last night, I'm going to kill everybody. That's, that's pretty intense, right? That's pretty demanding. That's, and they even said, this is impossible. His best magician said, this is impossible. How would we possibly know what you dreamt last night? And then word came to Nebuchadnezzar that there was a young man from the tribe of Judah that could do such things. And they bring him in, and I'm going to read that story of him telling Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. Second uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. O king, look, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awe-inspiring in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, and its chest and arms were silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of, ba- of uh, iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock 
was cut out, but not by human hands. So why don't you underline that if you guys don't mind writing in your Bibles. A rock that was cut out, but it wasn't cut by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time. It explodes and became like chaff on a threshing floor of the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue came a, became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. So right there, Daniel said, this is what you dreamt. And so Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is dropping right now. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the great king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Isn't that interesting? So who gives this pagan king dominion, might, power, and glory? God does. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, wherever they fly, wherever they live. He made you ruler all of them. Now here's the important part. You are that head. You are the golden head. After you, another kingdom will rise. And we'll just stop right there and I'll explain what's going on. So Nebuchadnezzar says that this dream that you have of his, and this is why I don't have a problem right now having this idol in this room, is because this dream is a godly inspired dream. This vision came from God. This image God put into Nebuchadnezzar's mind, and he put it into David, or excuse me, Daniel's mind to interpret. And right off the bat, he says, this is what's going on, and you are the golden head, Nebuchadnezzar. This is Babylon. Babylon is the gold head. I have a laser pointer here. There we go. It's my laser pointer. That is Babylon. I got a, these cheap gags. It's the only thing that's keeping us going these days. So Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. He interprets it right off the bat. And then he goes into the next kingdom. So this is a kingdom. Each level represents a specific kingdom. The next kingdom, he says, is the shoulders of silver and two arms of silver. This is the next kingdom that's going to replace Babylon. And though through history and the scriptures, we know that the next kingdom is the Persian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. It's actually two different types of groups, but it's the same culture. There are there's two arms of the same type of empire, the Medes and the Persians. How many people will admit to watching the movie 300? You guys, are, you guys need to ask for forgiveness. It's a terrible R-rated movie. Okay, but these are the guys that we're talking about. These are the guys we're talking about, the Persian Empire, Xerxes. And again, there's two branches, and it's represented right there between the two. The fascinating thing about Daniel saying the next one's going to be this silver thing. And, um, well, he'll go on to say in chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's the Medes and the per Persians. He this flat out says these are, these are going to be the people that are going to come next. Not only does he do that, 
he names the leader Cyrus before Cyrus is even around. He is that detailed. Daniel is that accurate in predicting not only the next kingdom, but the leader of the next kingdom. It is so precise that biblical interpreters and scholars and academics They'll say, well, it's so accurate that the only explanation is that it was written after the fact. But it's not. I mean, you and I might believe that, but it's not. It was written before. So I guess you could say that. Like, if you were skeptical, you could say, yeah, the only reason why Daniel got Cyrus right is because they wrote this after the fact. And yet, the next kingdom down. Okay, in the movie 300, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? Who were the good guys, everybody? The Spartans. And who were the Spartans? What kind of group of people are they? They're Greeks. So the next level down, the golden part, well, that's the Greek Empire. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Daniel. Daniel begins to have another vision, just like the king does. Daniel gets, Daniel's cool because he's like, oh, I can interpret your dream. I'm a dream interpreter. No big deal. Like, you shouldn't be freaking out. I got this. I'm going to tell you what you dreamt. I'm going to tell you what it means. And later on in the story, Daniel gets a download too. He gets a vision and a dream of his own. He literally sees our future, and it freaks him out. He doesn't even have the words or the emotions to process what was revealed to him. And just like this statue of four things, Daniel gets four things that correspond. He gets a vision of a lion. He gets a vision of a leopard and a ram. And he gets a vision of a goat. And he gets a vision of a, of a dragon. Iron teeth. We know that the golden head and the lion, they're highly symbolic of Babylon. The next vision Daniel gets of a bear and a ram, well, that represents that kingdom right there, the, the, the Persian Mede kingdom. And here's what's fascinating. Bear with me. I'm geeking out on you on history because I think it's the most amazing thing that proves that our Bible is true. The next one down, he says, a young goat is the next empire that takes place. And this goat is a wild goat. He is going to run rampant through everybody's empire. He's going to trample them all. He's going to, he's going to blitzkrieg the ancient world. And he's coming from Greece, and he is the king of Greece. That's Alexander the Great. He gets it so precise and so detailed. And then once again, I'm like, how could this possibly be? It must have been written way after the fact. And this is where the academics begin to start contradicting themselves because right now we're getting into the possibility of things. To make matters even more interesting, the next level down, the Dragon Empire, the Iron Teeth Empire, that is this statue's iron legs, which is the Roman Empire. Why, why legs and why iron? We know that Roman was this war machine like no one else has ever seen. And in Rome's history, eventually it split into two different kingdoms. Two Roman empires taking place at the same time. One in Rome and the other one in Constantinople. The other one, 
The one in Constantinople becomes the Byzantium Empire at some time. But we have two Roman empires being directed by two Roman emperors at the very same time, which is their two iron legs. And now the feet is the bell. That's the big mystery, folks. The feet of iron and clay, what in the world's going on there? It's debatable. There's lots of different opinions about what it is, but quite honestly, that, that could be where we are at right now. Like Daniel could be prophesying about that, those feet being us at this very moment. Now again, there's a lot of interpretations. There was actually 10, I don't know, how many toes do you guys have? Last time I counted, I have 10 toes. That's a good sign. History tells us that there were 10 Roman kings. This is an interesting fun fact. I don't know if it necessarily fits into this, but that's a possibility. Some say that there were 10 hills in Rome. Some say seven. So maybe it's the 10 hills in Rome. I'm not quite sure. Some say it's NATO. Some say it's the EU. Have you ever heard of the G10? We could be talking about that. It's very much in the realm of possibilities. Rome was, interestingly enough, out of all of these empires, Rome, the empire that uh, saw the birth of Jesus, it is the most like us. Our society is built on Roman structure and culture, whether we realize it or not. Our legal system is Roman. Our political system is Roman. The way we even do our arts and culture is very, very Roman. We're more Roman than we realize. It is an empire that deviated from being centered upon gods to being centered on man. And I think we can definitely relate to that. Rome is the very first secular empire. And it's fascinating stuff. We'll get to the rock in a minute. So what this is, these are the kingdoms of man, opposed to the kingdom of God, given in a vision. And I think we need to figure out why that applies to us. And does it? I think it does. If you got your notes, we're going to look real quick at God's hope for his judgment. Again, think of this as God's judgment for you. If you're not in covenant with him, if you're not in relationship, if you haven't been faithful, if you are entertaining sin of any sort, you need to know that there's consequences for that. It's just, it's just the biblical truth. God has to judge injustice towards nations, towards families, towards individuals. He just has to. Judgment at times feels harsh. When we're reading this story, like, oh my gosh, why would God do this? Well, here's the hope for you. If you've fallen under 
judgment if you've blown it. Once again, God promises you a people. This point in the story, though, there's something changing in the, ex- in the exile. There's a shift in the exile that we haven't seen before. Yes, God promises us a people. God promises us to deliver us. But now we're seeing something new in the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. All of these guys that got sent into exile or were on the border of exile, they began to write down new things for God's people and for us. Your first fill-in, a new thing, like a new exodus. Yeah, it stinks to be taken from the promised land. It stinks when you are once again in bondage and slaving away for the man. But there is a new exodus taking place that God has prepared. Jeremiah 16, 14 says, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord saves, who brought the Israelites out of where? Out of Egypt. But it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north, that's Babylon, and out of the countries where where he had banished them. For I will restore the land that I gave their ancestors. That's a big deal. You get put in time out, God's promise to you is that he's going to restore, he's going to give you your toys back. Second thing that God does with his people is that there is a promise. There is a new, this is is why we're here today, there is a new Passover lamb. Again, you remember the Exodus in order for you to run, you had to make sure that your doorposts were covered with the blood of the lamb. Your family had to survive the death angel and the judgment of God by spreading the blood of the lamb over your doorposts. It's vital. It seems kind of weird to us today, but we don't have to do that. We don't have to kill a lamb. We have Jesus. We have the blood of the lamb, and he gets prophesied into a new type of sacrifice. Isaiah 53 says, We... We all, like sheep, have gone astray. If I was writing Isaiah, I'd be like, you know what? All those sheep over there have gone astray. I'm the only one that's been good. Good thing God didn't let me write the Bible, huh? But Isaiah is not like us. He's honest about his own stuff. Isaiah says, we, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's a real, this is secret message stuff going on here. The Lord has laid on him, it should be a capital H I M, because he's talking about Jesus. He has laid upon Jesus the iniquity that we have all done. It's a new Passover lamb. Next felon is that all nations are now going to be included. In the midst of exile, God has a a vision that's bigger than our pain. Amen? Like, you might be in the midst of pain, but God has got a bigger vision than you have for your own self. God has a vision for the nations while they are exiled. They don't even have the homeland anymore. They're not even the promised land anymore. Life stinks, but God's got a bigger plan. That's the nations. The nations will now be included. God gives this to Isaiah, again, and divinely inspired. He says, 
It's not too small a thing for you to be my servants to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of, the, of Israel that I have kept. I, al- I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. If you don't know, that's us. We are the Gentiles. There is a light that's being made, and it started here in their exile. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It is God's plan. It is his destiny that the Jewish people were to bless every tribe, every nation throughout the ends of the world. And we're seeing this today. God promises us a space, a place. We get something new there too. Something new is being written. We get a new temple. It's your next fill-in. A new temple? What do I need a new temple for? Ezekiel is one of the trippiest books in the Bible. If you read it and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you might be thinking he's on a bad acid trip or alien abduction stuff. But this is some deep, mystical stuff. I want to encourage you to read it. He gives us the vision of a new temple with complete details, and it's gorgeous. It's otherworldly. And what Ezekiel is saying to us is, yeah, the Solomon temple didn't work out too well, but I got a new temple for you. They attempted to make a lousy temple after Solomon's, but it didn't work out too well. No, there's a new temple in heavenly places that's waiting for us. A place where we get to meet with God and to be in his presence. I can't read all of Ezekiel because it will take us forever. God promises us a new creation. Isaiah 65, 17 says this. Again, written in tension, written in the furnace. A new heavens and a new earth. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. When you step into heavenly places, and you can do so now, the old things, you're not going to remember them anymore. They won't even come to mind. The last time you blew it, the last time you failed, the last time you were in hardship, the last time the grieving got the better of you. When you find yourself in heavenly places, those things don't weigh on you anymore. The joy of the Lord becomes your strength. There will be a new rule and a new blessing. And this is most fascinating. I do have to read this scripture, so bear with me. A new rule and a new blessing that comes with a new covenant. God gave his people a covenant. It was hard. It's what they needed. They failed miserably. And yet God gives them another covenant. I don't know. If somebody burned me on a bad deal, I don't think I would give them another deal. For those of you that do business and somebody somebody screws you over, do you trust them again? Do you go into a a business contract again? Of course not. But God does. God gives us a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like 
the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will, okay, underline this, everybody. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's what we call relationship with God and not religion. The law goes into your heart. The other way that these prophets describe it, Jeremiah specifically says, I'm going to remove. No, it's actually Ezekiel. I get my prophets mixed up. Ezekiel says, I'm going to, God is going to remove your hardened heart of stone, and he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Why? So that you can be in a personal relationship with Jesus. And if your heart is hard, you can't talk to Jesus. It has to be soft. The heart has to be a heart of flesh so that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, can indwell there. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Amen? And here's the last one. We get a new king. David was pretty cool. I probably could have followed David. Solomon would probably would have drove me nuts. All the other guys... We all should be running from the hills or having leaders like that. But God promises us a new king, a better king, King Jesus. We see him prophesied in the midst of exile under pressure as well. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government these clowns, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. All right, so here's the hard stuff. Harsh, judgment, Falls on unfaithful people, on wicked people. We see it over and over in the Scriptures. Wicked people get away with murder, but judgment's coming. They can't run too far too long. Eventually, the slack on their leash is going to run out. For us as individuals... We all make mistakes. We all fall prey to our sin nature and our flesh. We all act in jealous, bitter ways. We snipe, we argue, we fight. It's so easy to make ourselves the Lord of our own lives. Did you catch that? It is so easy to set up an idol in our own heart, in our own image. Amen? Setting up an idol in our own heart and in our own image. So easy to do. We all do it. It can, it can actually be done daily if you're not in the Word and if you're not in prayer daily. One day without being in God's Word, you're beginning to, to, to create some golden statues in your heart. 
the other side of the coin, those that keep God's covenant, that stay faithful. It's milk and honey, folks. God blesses them. Like, God is looking for reasons to bless you. Stay connected to the new covenant. Stay connected to the new covenant. So here's what you need to know. Landon, come on up. This is what you need to know from Sunday school. And this felt character here. Every single kingdom that man set up against God, that God used to correct his people, every single time, God restores. He restored in Eden. He restored in the promised land. He restored in Egypt. He restored in the desert. He restored in the promised land. He restores in Babylon. He restored the Greek empire. He restored from the Persian empire. He restored and transformed the Roman empire. God's in control. Man is not. Every single time when man didn't deserve it, God gave them a second chance. This is what you need to know. God is the God of second chances. And third chances. And fourth chances. If I'm reading my Bible right, fifth and sixth chances. I believe that God will forgive over and over again, no matter how many times we blow it. He will forgive over and over. Jesus says 70 times 7. That's what he's requiring his disciples to do. If his disciples can forgive 70 times 7, God can forgive in eternity. He's got your heart and mind. He wants to save you. He's here to give you a second chance. Another second chance. Amen? That's my message. All right. I want to give our community a second chance to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Through a fall moon festival that we call Fall into Fun, I want to give our community a second chance by boldly declaring the virgin birth and divinity of Jesus Christ through our living nativity. But we need your help to do it. This is something beyond tithes and offerings. This is a seed of faith offering. These aren't the fun ones, but they're necessary in order to advance what we believe that God's vision is for us. So we're going to do another second offering. We're going to do this until our event takes place, our fall into fun and living nativity. For those that you that gave twice last week, God bless. God bless your seed today. I pray that it takes root, and I pray for the day when you see when you're blessed because of it. It is clear that God blesses seed offerings. So if i got to have the ushers come to the front, we're going to take the offering, the seed offering, the vision offering for those two outreach events because while this gospel message is meant to go out to all nations, and there's people I know in our communities that have not heard the gospel message. They did not have the opportunity to sit in a Sunday school class and be taught the message of the Bible through Feltgraf. If they haven't done it, I guarantee you 
there's thousands of people that don't know the gospel in your neighborhoods. And this is a, it's a tool that we reach them. And I know that there's many of you here today that have come here because of that outreach. Let's give it as a gift for those. For, from us, a child's been born. You will be the Prince of Peace. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray you bless this offering. I pray that, it, uh, that this seed takes root and powerfully moves in people's lives so that we can creatively express your gospel through the arts and through your creativity. God, I thank you so much for being faithful and being so good to us, even when we don't deserve it. For giving us a new covenant, a new deal. For giving us a new heart. For giving us a new life. Transforming us into a new creation. I pray right now that we'll quit resurrecting dead bodies in our lives and setting up gold statues in our hearts, but we will ask for your forgiveness time and time again, confess our sins to one another, leading us back into the promised land. We love you, Lord. Amen. As I send you out with the blessing, I want to. I think God's going to do something a little different this morning in that um, He's going to give you a confidence, a faith. He's going to give you a gift of faith that you don't have right now. You're going to have an assurance that the Word of God is living and breathing and active, and that it can speak to you tomorrow morning when you crack your Bible. Let's allow God to heal a sick heart before we head on out. So I just want to encourage you to put your put one hand on your heart and the other hand in a receiving motion as we receive the blessing and have a healed heart at the same time. May the Lord bless you 
and may he keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you. Now, I just want you right now to, in your mind's eye, whatever Jesus looks like to you, see his face in your mind and see his face lighting up as, as if it becomes this huge, giant floodlight emanating from his face onto you. And the scriptures say that the light of God can pierce any darkness, even the darkness of the heart. So may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and into your heart of darkness to set you free from exile, captivity, and slavery. Now you're going to feel the light of the Lord emanating from the inside out at this moment. Holy Spirit is doing a work from the inside out. That's, the, that's actually the only way that he works. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he pour out favor and open doors. May he give you a another dimension of grace that you haven't seen for seen yet may he turn towards you in your times of need you are you're you're in the fiery furnace folks you're under pressure lord is turning to you whenever you're under pressure respond and turn towards him i know it doesn't feel natural but when you're under pressure turn to the lord don't curse him bless him and the lord our god god almighty he will give you peace the literal atmosphere of heaven inside of your heart and inside of your homes it will go with you when you walk out the door it will go with you when you get into your car. It will go with you when you go into your house. The peace of God, which transcends all of this garbage we're going through right now. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And today, today is a special day because it's Sunday. It is Sabbath Sunday. And the Lord promises to give you rest. So today, rest in the Lord's goodness. Know that he is for you. He's not against you. All of your sins he has said he has forgotten about. And today you forget about them too. And be the object of God's affection this morning. Go on that blessing. Have a great day. Hope to see you next time.